The stories contained in this podcast are the recollections of the guests we've invited onto the show. We are an outlet for people to share their truths, and we accept no legal responsibilities for the stories contained herein. I'm Kendra Sheets. And I'm Rich Gill. And this is Enough, a podcast that aims to shine light into the darkened corners of the music industry while discussing the ways we can and should improve ourselves and in turn our community. So we are back with another episode of Subtext, which is our information-driven subset of the podcast. And as a refresher for anyone who's joining us, both new and old, Subtext episodes come out on the first Wednesday of every single month. It's a time when Rich and I break down and discuss a specific topic. Our guest interview episodes, which is the main crux of what the Enough podcast is, comes out on the third Wednesday of every month which means we will have a new one out in just two weeks. And just wait. Uh, I was going to try <laughs> to do something bills. where it's like, it's going to be huge. <laughs> it's going to be the same thing we always do. <laughs> yeah. And that brings us to today's subject, uh, speaking up and speaking out. Let's not say it with a uh, in the middle of the sentence. That would be better. We're going to examine what happens when a survivor speaks up and shares their story of abuse from a number of different sides. First, we'll start with the survivor themselves. Just the action of speaking out involves major risks, both emotionally and mentally. In the process of sharing their truth, they have to relive the incident to some extent. Because when you relive or speak about or think about a trauma that you have had, your right brain reacts as if that incident is actually happening at that current present moment. So it's a way of almost bringing the past into the future. And in that moment of retelling or remembering, that person is transported to that incident's occurrence and the experiences and all of the emotions that had occurred initially are flooded through your body all over again. It's really crazy. Um, It's kind of how EMDR works, which we've talked about before. And after dealing with that, It can take a lot of time and a lot of effort for your nervous system to reset and to relax. Then once the story is out in the public sphere, once they've recounted what happened, survivors may have to deal with social repercussions. They will receive support from some people, hate from others in the form of mocking, ridicule, or even threats from others. Some people will even be dismissive. We see this a lot. Why didn't they come forward sooner? They're just doing this for attention. The also popular, you're just doing this for clout crowd always comes out. It was their fault for being drunk, for being high, dressing too provocatively. They were just a groupie. What did they expect to happen? Depending exactly on how events play out, the survivor may feel ostracized from their community and lose their social ties. We've seen it happen so many times. And this can be very damaging to their sense of self especially in something as integral and communal as a music scene, especially the punk scene, which we've talked about numerous times on how communal and family this music scene is. We all need human connection. We thrive on it. And when that is suddenly gone, it can be extremely detrimental and isolating for the survivor. And so they're dealing with the emotional, they're dealing with the social, and then of course there's the impending threat of legal repercussions. And fear of prosecution is actually one of the main reasons that survivors don't come forward. They fear that they're not going to be believed once they do speak out and that the burden of proof will be on them. And they are fearful of the consequences that could accompany speaking out against someone when there's a clear difference in the power dynamics between them and the other person. 
Jeffrey Epstein and Harvey Weinstein are both examples of how survivors who came forward were silenced or threatened. Both men used their positions of power, their job connections, and their social circles to quash whispers from not only survivors, but from others who witnessed the behavior and from those who were attempting to assist the survivors in sharing their stories. For more information or examples on how extreme this can actually get, you can check out Ronan Farrow's book, Catch and Kill. I think I mentioned it before. It's all about how he documents the struggle that he, as an outsider trying to break the Harvey Weinstein story, um, everything he had to deal with, all that came with it. He had job loss. He had social circle issues. And he wasn't even one of the direct survivors. He was just kind of part of the shockwave of people that this affected. As Kendra said, when speaking about the Weinstein and Epstein cases, there were empty threats, actual threats, jobs were lost, careers were ruined, all just to find out in the end that Epstein and Weinstein and countless others throughout the years that we've talked about, some of them on this podcast, some of them we haven't, some of them we probably will, they were all doing everything that the survivors had been saying all along. A civilian going up against a Goliath like an industry mogul or a celebrity who already has high-priced lawyers on retainer ready to defend their brand can be financially and emotionally draining. In episode 7, we spoke with Kate of the Surviving Justice podcast. In episode 19, we discussed the realities of rape. In both, we touched on how many people don't come forward due to a distrust of the police or the legal system. Rape kits go untested for years, even decades. As of 2022, about 25,000 rape kits were untested in the U.S. In 2019, a report came out documenting that there were 1,700 untested rape kits found in police storage facilities in Minneapolis, spanning as far back as 30 years. That's just one city, Minneapolis. Statistics estimate that one in six women in the U.S. will be raped in 2023. Let's say that one more time. One in six women in the U.S. will be raped in 2023. There are estimated to be 167.5 million females in the U.S. as of today. Do that fucking math. These reasons, among many others that we've touched on in prior episodes, are why it is so, so important to believe someone when they come forward. So a survivor speaks out against a band or a musician. That's what we talk about here. What is everyone else supposed to do? In a perfect world, we would instantaneously believe the victim. As a society, we're not all there yet. Rich and I have openly shared times when we did not do the right thing when confronted with information that someone had been accused. We were wrong. Humans are not infallible. But it is important that we all learn from our mistakes. It is human nature to be skeptical and to want evidence as proof. It's hard to believe that someone that we feel like we know, that we have a connection with because they've captivated us with their songs or their stage presence, or we met them backstage and they were very nice or whatever. It's, it's hard to believe that someone like that could ever do something so sinister. Why would they do that? They seem like such a great person. They really love their fans or their partner or their family. But there's just so much at stake, as we've just discussed, that survivors are risking a lot of themselves and their lives when they speak out. They are willing to completely upturn their lives to tell their truth. And just to quell the but everybody lies crowd, there has been extensive research on the rates of false reports of rape and assault. As we talked about in episode 19, they ranged from about 2 to 10%, which is exceedingly similar to the rates of false reports for other crimes. 
So despite what one may think, that this is a quick and convenient way for someone, usually a female presenting person, to gain attention, the research doesn't support that. So believe women, believe victims, believe survivors. It can also be exceedingly hard for people to believe something occurred that either they didn't experience or that goes against their prior experiences. We see this a lot with band statements or when fans of a band or musician in question respond to allegations. It's the, I never witnessed this behavior in the time I've known them, response. While that's an easy way to deny accountability, it just doesn't really stick when it comes down to it. It would be like someone trying to say three years after the start of the COVID-19 pandemic that they didn't see COVID in the room, so they didn't know getting sick was a possibility. It's not a malady like a chronic bloody nose. They don't wear a scarlet R on their chests. You can never be sure who someone is when they are behind closed doors or off the stage or on their bus or in their hotel room or in the van. And when it comes to band members or people who are close to the accused, they're not with that person 24 hours a day. One thing we know about abusers is they're good at hiding their actions from the people closest to them. Abusers don't just groom victims, they also groom friends, family members, and anyone they're close to. Also, just because you didn't have a negative experience with this person doesn't mean other people didn't. The dynamics are different if you are a bandmate slash friend than if you are a person being abused. Just because someone treats friends or acquaintances one way in public, bar, at a meet and greet, wherever, doesn't mean they're going to treat their partners the same way in private. When bands in a smaller circle, or bands who act as the pillars of a community such as the punk scene, do not speak out against the accused or assault, when they remain silent, or even when they mock the survivor's account, the results are the same. It's failure, plain and simple. Maybe you didn't ask to be in a leadership role in the community, but when you take the stage and are literally platforming yourself above others, that's the outcome. Therefore, it becomes your responsibility to hold others accountable to promote your shows as safe. And this is coming from me, a person who years ago, before I even understood what the phrase meant, was mocking the term safe space. I have changed, as we can obviously see. <laughs> when you are a pillar, you have people looking up to you. When a band or public figure speaks up in support of a survivor, the more real the abuser's actions become. If you never hold the people around you accountable for their actions or their comments, behavior will never change. Cancel culture isn't new. It's the people's solution to not having anywhere else to turn due to a justice system which has consistently failed survivors. It's a form of boycotting and, at its core, is one of the most grassroots methods of letting the masses know what is important to you. And while our instinct may be to wait for our favorite bands and artists to speak out about an issue, from what we've seen, even from bands who classify themselves as feminist, they may not. It is therefore on us, the fans, the ones spending our money on tickets, shows, and records to define what we will not live with in our scene. They make art, and they are dependent on us to enjoy and consume that art so they can continue the cycle. But if their morals do not align with speaking up for the oppressed, a topic that is commonly addressed in punk, then what are they promoting? If you're willing to speak up about someone being injured at your show, why are you not willing to speak up about someone being injured by someone you play shows with? If you're so outspoken about the importance of mental health, why are you not talking about the importance of speaking out about sexual violence? When bands go out of their way to spread awareness about social issues yet stay silent 
when one of their peers is accused of sexual assault or abuse, it speaks volumes about where their allegiances really lie. Accountability is not an easy thing. No one wants to admit or be told that they've hurt someone. But we've all done it in some form. And when you're called out for it, it can feel like you're being attacked. Your immediate response is probably to be defensive and to just deny, deny, deny. That person is a liar. I never did the thing that they said I did. Here are 20 examples of me doing the opposite thing with other people. It's not true. Wynn Butler of Arcade Fire famously offered to give journalists the number of women that he had consensual sexual relationships with, as if that means he could have never had non-consensual interactions with other women when multiple allegations came out against him. When it comes down to it, there's no perfectly right way to handle this. The previous example is definitely the wrong way, but we're not here to give you the blueprint for exactly what to say. That's on you. What we are here to do is tell you to hold the bands you listen to accountable for their actions. Hold your friends and family accountable. Hold yourself accountable. This is supposed to be a community of anti-racists, anti-sexists, anti-homophobes, people who didn't fit in with the cool kids at school, so they found comfort and safety with the other outsiders. We're supposed to look out for each other. If someone falls down in the pit, pick them up, right? That's how the saying goes. Same goes for life, too. So start acting like you actually fucking give a shit. Enough is a podcast centering on surviving abuse, harassment, and assault in the music scene. To help get the word out, please like and subscribe and share with your friends. If you have been on the receiving end of harm from someone, be it artist, venue owner, booking agent, audience member, or someone else, and would like to share your story on a future episode, please reach out to us at thisisenoughpodcast at gmail.com. All correspondences are kept confidential.